So uh, let me let me pray, and we'll do a brief review, and then uh, a few slides here, and um, then I'm happy to take questions until uh, my voice gives out. So yes, all right, Father, we come before you this morning, and we uh, we pause to thank you for the your grace and your gift of life through your Son Jesus Christ. Will you? come and be among us this morning, speak through your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom and insight uh, into this, this whole topic, and uh, will it, we ask that this is pleasing to you, and will you challenge our thoughts in the right way, affirm what is good, and help us to discern and to uh, question and criticize what, uh, what is not good. It's in your name we pray, amen. Uh, very briefly, this uh, what I'd like to talk about here is how uh, how gender dysphoria is treated uh, among adults, at least in in the field of medicine. But I also want to include some Christian stories of hope. Thanks in part to Brian, who's given me at least one story to to recall this morning. Um, and I also want to talk about. Uh, some of the, well, we're going to look briefly at what some denominations are saying or their stance on gender dysphoria. We'll look at a few statements that have been published. And finally, we'll look at, I I want us to see at least briefly how some transgender Christians are trying to make sense of their their condition and um, by interacting with scripture in ways that we probably may not always agree with, but I, I want at least you to get a flavor of how some Christians are looking at the Bible, which is always a, uh, a complicated topic. So while we may agree on a lot of things, there's a lot that Christians disagree on, and they're kind of big, like how to interpret scripture, uh, the nature of uh, human gender identity, uh, and again, how, how closely related is our identity, how, how closely tied to the body should it be? Uh, and then acceptable forms of intervention. Beyond that, um, things are, you know, I don't know what else there is to say. Uh, uh, briefly, uh, this slide is from last week. It comes from Yar House's work, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. I find this framework helpful to always keep in mind when we're looking at issues in culture or we come across stories uh, uh, that we see in the news, etc. Um, I'm asking myself this question, what, what type of framework is this story situated in? Um, the integrity framework, we could, we could call the you know, conservative Christian evangelical framework, we see, or this view sees, rather, gender incongruence as problematic and sinful. Uh, the disability framework is somewhere in the middle. It, it recognizes that, well, there, we may live in a fallen world, and that even as a Christian if I suffer from this, it's not necessarily anything I've done, but this is a product of some, some deeper uh, flaw in human nature. But it's still up to the individual to respond a- appropriately. And then there's the diversity framework. It's in stronger and weaker forms. The strong form is, uh, comes uh, from several philosophers who are bent on deconstructing this notion of gender altogether. Um, the, the weaker form are usually uh, put forward by those who really struggle with this, but also 
um, want to celebrate on some level that they're indeterminate, and so they gender indeterminate. They may not be entirely dysphoric, and what we'll see is that Yarhouse, I think, helpfully points out that uh, our that the level of um, the intensity of dysphoria varies along a spectrum. Some people find it very difficult to function. Others are able to manage it, and there are others who uh, embrace it. And so um, it's sometimes difficult to figure out which one is, uh, which one's going on. And then Yarhouse himself puts together his own integrative framework where he picks out the things that he thinks are worthy in each of those three frameworks. And this is again from last week, but I thought this was worth at least just reviewing quickly again. Um, he reminds us that experiences of dysphoria are indeed uh, a part of my reality. They may be how uh, I am today or tomorrow or any given day, um, but he would quickly say that does not mean that needs to be who you are. Uh, I did not choose to experience dysphoria. I may never know its cause. I think this is true. Uh, I am a complex person, and dysphoria need not define me. Again, this is, this is how I am. It need not be who, who I am. Uh, and two more, I do not know how I've come to experience this, but I can consider what it means to me today and how I respond to it from here on out. Uh, there may be pathways available to me. I will consider the least invasive steps when possible. That's, um, again, right out of Yarhouse's work. And I, I, I think those are good. That's obviously why I, why I put them up yet again. Um, here's some statistics, however, on um, prevalence in adults. I know someone asked me last week, and I didn't have uh, the number here, about um, how, many, how many adults who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria or self-diagnose themselves with this dysphoria. How many adults have experienced this way back in childhood? Uh, the, I did find one statistic that put it somewhere between 60 and 70 percent. So uh, instances of what might be called adult onset dysphoria with no prior inclinations or leaning or dysphoria in childhood is probably the minority, probably 30 percent. Uh, nevertheless, persistent, persistence levels are very low. That means for the individuals who experience it as, adult, as adults, but also experience this as children, the, uh, the, the rate varies from anything from 0.05 to 14%, 0.014% of males, and even smaller for females. So I, I do want to reiterate that this condition is still exceedingly rare fewer than 1 in 10,000 males and 1 in 30,000 females would be, desic uh, would be um, diagnosed with dysphoria. However, we are finding that since this is getting more cultural traction, we're, we're finding, again, teenagers who, um, for various reasons, are identifying as gender neutral or the opposite gender. It may not, in, in many cases, is not a genuine diagnosis of dysphoria, but it is it is leading to an increase in that kind of phenomenon. So there's some relation there. Um, comorbid psychopathologies like mood and anxiety disorders and suicidality are, are a part of this reality too. We will we'll see some um, rather uh, sad, well, we'll see a couple of sad stories here 
uh, in a minute that, um, that ought to give us pause. Um, here's here's uh, another quote from Yarhouse, and I alluded to this a couple of minutes ago. Uh, he says here that uh, a challenge that arises, and, and this I think he's right, uh, is that not all gender nonconformity rises to the level or this level of cross-gender identification, that is a gender dysphoric presentation. Remember that this is an extreme and rare form of cross-gender identification that we now refer to as gender dysphoria, but gender dysphoria, in a broader sense, that is sub-threshold, can exist and may not be experienced subjectively by the person in question as distressing and may not very well rise to the level of true distress in and of itself. Hence, the, the continuum, the spectrum. This is certainly a complex and complicated area for reflection and consideration, so there is wisdom in viewing gender dysphoria broadly or along a continuum. You're, you may be picking up on a recurring theme over the last few weeks, and that is it's complicated. Um, and I, I keep hammering that because I think, frankly, in, in the broader culture, uh, evangelicals have a, a bad reputation for simplifying things, for oversimplifying things. Um, I, I do want to talk briefly about um, the connection between gender dysphoria and sexual orientation. There is some link there. Again, we don't, we don't know how always to speak about that. Um, those who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria will express varying degrees of comfort or discomfort in having those two notions connected at all. But yet we have this, um, you know, this growing alphabet, LGBTQ plus sign, where if you notice, transgender, like it or not, for, for many folks, is grouped in with all of these other sexual orientations. And it's not always easy to disentangle them. Um, I'm hoping that this, uh, what's known as Blanchard's typology is, is somewhat helpful. He is a Canadian-American psychologist and sexologist. Um, could you imagine like giving someone a business card that says sexologist <laughs> on it? But it's, it is a legitimate um, discipline, um, and Blanchard's fairly well-known. Well he actually did his undergrad here at the U of I. Um, but he has developed this uh, a typology um, that's known as, um, there he is, uh, Blanchard's typology. Um, this is Gary J. Blanchard, who has absolutely nothing to do with this okay. presentation. <laughs> you, you have to be careful when you're looking for images on Google. And I almost uploaded him, and then I thought, well, why not give him some love? He's, a, he's at Michigan State, and he is a chemist. But uh, again, he, there he is. There's Gary. Um, so here, here are three common, um, well, this is his high-level typology. You've got male to female. You've got um, female to male, male to female, I'm sorry. And then there's a subset of male to female that is called autogynephilic type, and I'll explain that shortly. Um, he notes that the, the, the female to male type gender dysphoria um, many people will feel this from uh, their early, earliest remembrances of being a child. They may frequently identify as masculine. They will often speak of wanting to be a boy or wanting to dress like a boy or wanting to play games with boys and uh, have no interest in more girl activities. 
He says typically the female to male client is not attracted to males. They are seeking to be a female um, and to be, to have, um, let, let me back up again. They are seeking to be a female, to be attracted to them as a male. That's somewhat confusing, but they, they, they want to become, they, they want to have a female be attracted to them as their male identity. So they would not see themselves as a lesbian, but again, because of gender, um, they would see that as a heterosexual impulse that is, um, flows from their true sense of gender. Now we have the other, the other direction, male to female. There's an androphilic and an autogynophilic type. Um, this, this case, the second case, parallels the first. Um, an androphilic person will typically be viewed as more effeminate from a young age and not want to play with boys as much, but want to do girl-type things, wear dresses. They may be preferred. They may express a preference to be called by a female name and have a bond that's very strong with their mother. Um, what distinguishes this from the, the second type is that there's no, there's no perceived in adulthood sexual arousal from adopting the opposite gender role or say as being a boy or a man dressing as a woman, what we might call you know, uh, the transvestite condition, that is largely absent from this case and this is what separates the auto, the, sorry, the androphilic from the autogynophilic state. <laughs> So he says this person is looking for a male to be attracted to him as a female. Uh, Blanchard, I'm quoting here, homosexual gender dysphorics maintain that their sexual interest in other men is actually heterosexual because inside they are really women. But notice he called them homosexual gender dysphorics, which I think would be strongly resisted by the, the, the gender dysphoric community. Finally, the, the autogynophilic type is, um, adds on this added element of um, experiencing the arousal of the fantasy of being the opposite sex. So that's where the term comes from. Philia is Greek for love, autos is oneself, and uh, uh, gyne means woman in, in Greek, hence, hence gynecology, etc. Um, over time, he notes, some may feel the need to transition to female, but um, he's very suspicious of that, and he, he suspects and, and has some data to back this up, that these folks who actually do this are more likely to express regret over transitioning, because it was more of an erotic kind of thing than a true gender identity issue. You may recall, and if, that's fine if you don't, a couple weeks ago, Paul McHugh, who used to perform this surgery and has since come out and rejected all forms of it, I think he accuses Bruce Jenner of this type of presentation. Like he's not truly identifying as a woman. This is this is more a paraphilia going on here. So that's those are just more um, more aspects to uh, to this condition. The, the last point I want to make about this is that in the the latest uh, diagnostic and statistical manual on mental disorders DSM five. Um, they have specifically shifted focus away from um, orientation or a sexual attraction. They are looking primarily at identity. They, they are focusing more on early and late onset occurrences. 
Early is far more common, though again, they also point out in many children this will resolve, like uh, an upwards of 80% um, before, uh, before puberty. But that's not always the case. And for, for adults who are formally diagnosed, um, a high percentage of them will recall that puberty was just a time of absolute um, terror and distress because their, their bodies are now far, forming in ways that are visibly against who they identify um, themselves as gender-wise on, on the inside. Um, it's interesting in Yarhouse's book, I mean, he's, he's an evangelical Christian, but he's also clinically trained. He talks about four responses to this. And, you know, I, even after reading the book and writing a review on it, I, I never really caught that in his four responses, he, he doesn't address the possibility of, of like, victory over this condition. And I, I, I'm, I am not here to guess why that may be the case. So don't be confused by, um, this, is, this is Yarhouse's data. And, and I'm, I'm following this somewhat, but I'm going to back up and talk about some stories of victory first. But as Yarhouse sees it, uh, and there's a, there's a graph that I've lifted from his book in your notes, um, the most common outcome is, is the unresolved outcome, which um, leaves a lot of questions. And then he lists, you know, um, increasing levels of accommodation, basically. But there's, there's no, um, he doesn't list the possibility of complete victory from this. Um, uh, and and I'm, again, I don't know why, I don't want to speculate, but uh, I, do, I do want to talk about at least that possibility, though I will, will also caveat that with several warnings. Um, and so I want to tell the story of um, um, Walt Heyer, um, uh, someone at a, uh, at a family uh, research internet website sent me some, some data and uh, sent me an email with this story as a kind of a maybe a pushback to the discussion that we had uh, a while ago. And I thought, well, this is this is fair, so I, I think we should we should hear and tell Walt's story. And so um, I'm going to do that right now, and then you can we'll move on. Um, at age four, Walt says that, um, and he doesn't remember whether he asked his grandmother or his grandmother pushed this on him, but. From age four, he remembers his grandmother dressing him in girls' dresses, uh, and she called this our little secret, and he recalls loving the affirmation, and over time, he began to identify as a girl. Um, and the story just gets sadder before, before there's redemption here. He was later uh, molested by his dad's adopted brother when it was clear that he was um, not presenting as a normal boy, and this persisted for a couple of years. And when he told his mom, she accused him of lying. So he said, I became profoundly depressed because I, I didn't feel safe in the world, and I had no one I could talk to. So throughout his teen years, he um, tried to construct an overtly masculine identity. Like, you know, he pursued cars and football and ended up going into the aerospace industry, um, you know, very, you know, typically male-dominated fields, um, although that's changing. But he admits he was miserable the whole time. He finally saw a psychologist, 
by the name of Dr. Paul Walker, who at the time was pioneering these surgeries. And he immediately said, oh yeah, you've got this condition, start taking hormones. He waited the prescribed amount of time. And then right up to the, the day he was to have surgery, he, uh, he, he backed out. And by the way, in the meantime, he's, he's become married and he's had you know, two kids and he's still married. Um, he finally told his wife, which um, would seem to be a good idea, um, <laughs> but they ended up getting divorced, right? She couldn't accommodate this story, didn't know what to do. And so when the opportunity for surgery came again, he did it and he became Laura Jensen. Um, and as he was transitioning, as he announced this change to his coworkers and friends and family as part of the protocol, um, his work, when his work found this out, um, they terminated him immediately on his birthday. So he didn't even make it into his office. They had his whole office cleaned out and you know sent, sent over to HR. So um, his life is unraveling. Um, he lost his job, he lost his marriage, his kids didn't want to have anything to do with him, and his drinking was becoming more and more of a problem. So he finally enrolled at a 12-step program um, that led to what he would call deliverance. And so during step four, which involves like praying out to God or your higher power and asking for help and putting your trust in someone outside of yourself, he said... Um, he said he felt God reaching out to him. And so he, um, he got the sense that God was telling him, I will never reject you, you will be safe. And as he tells the story, he says, from that moment onward, all of my feelings of dysphoria ceased. And so through, throughout a series of events and people that came into his life, he would later become a Christian. And he actually decided to detransition and become Walt again, although, you know, the, the damage um, physiologically, a lot of that can't be undone. Um, he restored and repaired the relationship with his kids. Um, he has since uh, remarried. So in, in this video that I watched, he was featured on a Christian television program. He insisted that gender dysphoria is not a medical condition. Uh, and I'm quoting him, nobody is born transgender, he said. Um, and he said, I would learn later on that I had a dissociative disorder, and I now, he now speaks messages of hope and love to those who are either homosexual or struggling with gender dysphoria. Um, Kyle, Kyle David Foster just released a, a, a documentary. Um, he's got his own crazy story about um, being a male prostitute in Hollywood and being gay and is, is now a born-again Christian uh, this documentary came out last year, and he said of the he said he found that of the 17 people he interviewed for his documentary, he said he was shocked to find that every single one of them had experienced sexual trauma as a child. Um, but he also backs that statement back a little bit and says that's not you know I realize that's not everybody's story. So so there's one. One story of hope, uh, the one that Brian brought to my attention is Linda, Linda Saylor. Um, she described what she would call as victory over her desire to be a boy after a lengthy 11-year process. And she said it all started, my, that is my recovery, when she shared her secret desires with the campus minister. She found someone safe 
and she was pleasantly surprised that this campus minister didn't beat her over the head with scripture and send her away, making her feel you know, guilty and ashamed. But she said, I repeatedly prayed James 5.16 as a confession of prayer and healing, right? James makes that connection. Um, and this prompted her to seek victory over homosexuality through counseling, but she makes it clear this was an exceedingly long and arduous process. Um, about nine years into the process, she went to uh, an inner healing prayer counselor at uh, a place called Elijah House, um, and this counselor helped her, kind of gently guided her through a lifetime of deep emotional wounds and helping her pray through those. The, the process is called theophostic prayer, um, and that, that's a Greek term. Um, it's, um, phos is the, is the word for light, and theos is God. So it's letting, letting the Spirit of God guide you in your prayer life. Um, and she, she eventually was able to forgive those who hurt her. Now, just, just full disclosure here, the theophostic prayer ministry makes a disclaimer on their website that this is not a particular form of counseling and should not be confused with Christian counseling. And if you need Christian counseling, go get Christian counseling. And that our, our trained personnel are not to um, diagnose, give advice, or offer personal opinion, counsel, or provide steps of action, <laughs> but rather to let, to, to let the Holy Spirit do that. So... Um, I, you should know that, and that's, I'm not trying to bash what's going on here. I'm just, I'm just pointing out it's technically not counseling, but it was very useful in, in Linda's life. Um, she, these are her words. Healing from sexual brokenness is rarely instantaneous. It's more like peeling back layers of an onion. Um, should be one at a time instead of on at a time. Um, but if we will hold fast to the truth of God's word and determined never to give up, we will experience transformation to the point that the sin which once characterized our lives ceases to dominate us. Um, the benefits are obvious, uh, and I am not in a position to question these stories or the validity of them, and I say amen. Um, I can only wish that everybody had this experience, um, but I, I do want to talk about the downsides of this. Maybe they're not quite as obvious. Not the downside of their recovery, but the downside of telling their stories exclusively. Let, let me make that clear. Um, I think we need to be very careful in holding out these as models for transformation because it's not possible that everyone will experience this kind of healing. And I think it's very easy to unintentionally heap more sh uh, shame and scorn and guilt on those whose stories don't match these like bright lights of victory. So I want to ask the question, it's somewhat open-ended, but I'm answering it for us, how do, how do we measure victory, right? Well, I, I don't think there's any one answer, and I think we have it on good authority. We could go to Paul, right? We'll take the Pauline perspective, who asked for a thorn to be taken from his flesh. Some, 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 more, um, some more cantankerous or maybe liberal theologians have speculated that um, the thorn in his flesh was homosexuality. Um, just uh, we don't know. We we don't know. But but um, it was clear to him that Christ said, you know, my power is going to be displayed through your weaknesses and failure, and my grace is sufficient. 
So for every story of victory, I suspect we'll have um, several stories where people will at best say, you know, God's grace has been sufficient, and I'm still trying to work through this, or I am still committed to the struggle. Um, and, and we also need to admit this as well, because I think this will wrangle a lot of people who suffer from gender dysphoria and say, you know what, I grew up in a Christian home, my parents loved me, I was, um, I was cared for and nurtured. Um, it's a little bit offensive if you start connecting every instance of gender dysphoria to sexual abuse. You, you don't know anything about my story or me. So it, just because it happens in this documentary that all of, all of these individuals um, experience that, well, certainly there's a link there. But um, if we make that the whole story, I think that's problematic. Um, yes, so we should be aware that even Christians who work from a diversity framework are going to be particularly hostile to these kinds of stories. There is a strong resistance in our culture more generally to anything that smacks of conversion therapy. And all these debates have been out there for a couple of decades with the homosexuality debate. And they're just mirrored in this debate. Uh, and here is, here is a, a, a sad instance of that. Um, this is uh, Leela Al Alcorn, a 17-year-old transgender youth, born as Joshua, but always felt that he was born in the wrong body and always felt from his early, earliest remembrances that he was a girl, had Christian parents, came out to his parents at age 14. Um, they reacted negatively. They enrolled him in a Christian conversion therapy program um, at age 16 after he asked to begin the transition process. Uh, and then after revealing his attraction to men, his parents pulled him out of school and revoked all access to his social media. Um, and afterwards, um, he committed suicide. Um, in his suicide note, he spoke of loneliness and alienation, and he blamed his parents for his depression. Clearly, there's lots of things going on here. Can you blame it all on curative therapy? Um, I highly doubt it, but at the same time, his parents behaved in a way that cut him off um, and gave him no sense of hope. And he has become an enormously powerful meme on the internet. Note, I mean, there's hundreds of these cartoon drawings that mimic that photo that you've just seen. Um, you know, rest in power, Leela Alcorn. Um, and there's competing uh, interpretations of the narrative. This is uh, his own mother. Uh, and notice someone has taken, someone's edited this, right? My sweet 16-year-old daughter, Leela, uh, went home to heaven this morning um, he, after being hit by a truck. Well, he committed suicide, uh, and he did. He walked out in front, or jumped out in front of a speeding truck at the last minute. Uh, anyway, um, this, is, um, th this, is, this is truly sad. Uh, in, in the note, he noted that, her, that uh, his mom especially reacted extremely negatively, telling me that it was a phase, that I would never truly be a girl, and that God doesn't make mistakes. Um, and then Lila wrote that Christian counselors reinforced, reinforced the notion that being transgender was wrong. Uh, and it had um, you know, troubling results. This, is, uh, this has got more traction in our culture as, as well and in the political sphere. In 2015, 
a petition was presented to the White House to ban, it was called Leela's Law, right, to ban all types of conversion therapy. Um, President Obama weighed in on this and lent his support to their efforts. Um, but at least two medical professionals who are not Christians urged Obama to slow down. Uh, they published a rejoinder or a rebuttal to this law in the Chicago Tribune. Um, and while they, were, they heaped scorn and were enormously critical of any conversion therapy for homosexuals, they said, well, of course that's wrong. Um, they did say that gender dysphoria is different and you, you know, you, it, is, it is not wise to affirm a child's presentation without pushing back. So, and, and these, are, you know, these are clinically trained psychologists and psychiatrists who are saying um, this, this, should not, this should never be a law. This, that there's, a, there's a problem here. So um, that's the, those are the stories of victory and the counter stories that um, maybe take the edge off of some of those stories. But I, again, I'm, I'm not discounting the validity of these, these radical um, healings and these instances of victory, but we, we should also acknowledge that this doesn't happen for everyone. Yarhouse um, seems, to, seems to think this as well. So um, the, other, the other ways of handling dysphoria, as your house sees it, become more accommodating. Um, the second option is resolving to live in accordance with your birth sex. He calls this path two, and he says, I'm quoting, these may feel gender dysphoric, but um, they live as their birth sex and adopt a lifestyle that reflects that. Um, here, Yarhouse, again, would fall back on a combination of narrative and attributional therapy that does challenge, especially a teenager's view of their gender identity and ask some probing questions to help get at maybe what the root of, of, of that identity is. And certainly he is uh, not in favor of just mindlessly affirming what every kid says he or she identifies as in his office. John, yes? How is this going to impact the schools and the parents that are going to uh, try to be yep. neutral until their adolescence. Yeah, schools are, um, I don't know is my short answer, but it's, it's, they're, they're moving in that uh, direction um, in, in terms of uh, not challenging and affirming. And mm -hmm. I, look, I'm all for being a safe teacher and allowing someone to disclose some things that are enormously um, well, that are very intimate and um, leave them exceedingly vulnerable. Um, but I, if I were a teacher, I wouldn't necessarily heed any kind of guidelines that would tell me how I need to respond to that person. But that, that might put you, you know, that's a risky, that's a risky approach. And I think I said last week, whatever, whatever I would do, I wouldn't put anything in an email that could be tracked back to me. But it would, <laughs> and, and I'm serious, right? I would. Um, I would uh, I, I would direct them to, to some kind of counseling, but I certainly wouldn't just embrace their sense of identity that's going against their biology. I would I would deliberately ask them some probing questions, but I would also say I want you to you know consider me a safe person. I'm not. Um, if you want to talk about this some more, I'm I'm happy to listen. And, and pray like crazy for those individuals. But I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm not against Christians having a public voice and sit, telling the school district, slow down with all of these, you know, with this new kind of, um, these new history textbooks 
that are deliberately meant to include the contributions of uh, homosexual and transgendered individuals. I, I guess, I guess, and, and there there are more subtle and sophisticated ways to do that, and less subtle. And I'm not sure the evangelical community has a good concept of a less subtle way to do that. Um, in other words, I might say something like this: Why should sexuality have anything to do with a discovery that someone has made? Um, in history, science, art, medicine, whatever, unless it is someone who is proposing some theory of sexuality, in which case, you know, I'm, we, sh- we, we have no reason to be afraid of history. Um, so um, th- that, that'd be my question. Why are we making sexuality an issue at all um, about, about these individuals? Uh, maybe they didn't want that stuff disclosed. Why are, why are we digging around trying to, well, I know why we're doing, we're trying to, you know, make everybody tolerant and loving, um, but I think there's a better way to be tolerant and loving, and that's to be a Christian. Um, anyway, uh, you, you can come back to me, uh, you know, if, if, um, if, if you want to, like, revisit that and ask further questions, but that, that, is, that is a tricky issue, and I don't, if you are in Unit 4, um, you're in a precarious position, but, and also, you are also in a position that gives you a, a, a remarkable amount of influence that um, can be practiced uh, with wisdom and um, grace uh, with, with a kind of subversive spirit. But uh, in, anyway, um, yeah, those are all fair questions. Um, your, here's why I think Yarhouse doesn't talk about the stories of victory. And it's, he's... Uh, he's drawing on other evidence. Uh, Richard Carroll um, does not have a very uh, um, hopeful assessment of people uh, attaining any kind of victory over this. And, and this Yarhouse includes in his book. Um, these claims, what claims specifically of resolution through psychotherapy. Now, notice we're not even talking victory. We're just talking resolution, just making peace with this dysphoria uh, may uh, have not been actually supported by controlled group studies. It appears now that the majority of adults with gender dysphoria cannot or will not completely accept their, uh, their given gender through psychological treatment. That's also a non-Christian statement, right? I mean, I, who, who are we to get in the way of the power of Christ? But again, with a caveat, with a warning, that, that need not be everybody's story. Everybody's story. Um, God has a way of always frustrating our attempts to put God in a box or, or you know, spit out the right formula, the incantation here, are the eight steps to success, to a deeper spiritual life, etc. Um, so uh, again, these, uh, as we list these four, they, they go into uh, an increasing level of accommodation. If, if you can't achieve some resolution, then now you're down to management, which Yarhouse would say for many individuals may, uh, and I know this will sound defeatist, but it, it will be something along the lines of adopting um, the, the, uh, your gender identity in particular places of privacy or um, at home or on the road or something to try to, to, try to manage the condition under, under the uh, awareness that, um, you know, I would never have surgery, but I'm, I'm not sure how to cope with this, which, um, which invites questions. Um, and, and some churches will, will put this statement out there. Well, 
Um, clearly that's wrong because the Bible says you shouldn't dress, you, you shouldn't adopt, um, you know, the clothes of the opposite person. Deuteronomy 22.5, right? So, um, and this opens up a big can of worms among Christians as to not only how you use the Bible and ethics, but how do you, how do you read the Old Testament, uh, in, in, in line with the New Testament. And, and there, there's, listen, there's lots of things going on here. Um, scholars will point out what is, what is very interesting is that this is one of the few commands that starts that is actually commanded to a woman and not a man because almost all of the others in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, almost without exception, are commanded to the men. But here um, we find the author saying, no, a woman shall not wear anything pertains to a man, etc., vice versa. At the very least, we can say this. Uh, I think a, 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 uh, a well, a, a, a good, that's not the only word I can come up with right now, a, a good interpretive plan or approach is always to ask the question, what did this text mean for the Israelites in their historical context before we try to do the much more challenging job of asking what significance that has for us. In its historical context, um, cross-dressing was often a form of punishment, like the Hittites would make defeated soldiers put on women's clothing and make them do women's labor as a sign of humiliation. Um, uh, Cross-dressing practices are also intimately associated with cultic activities and prostitution and child sacrifice in the ancient Near East. And if Israel is to be God's holy people, then that any activity that smacks of something that is unholy is, is forbidden. The bigger question is, um, how does that Old Testament text relate to the New Testament even, or to us today? And, and here you, you will have a lot of disputes. Uh, there are different, different approaches to take here. Um, some would say that there's a principle involved, uh, and we, we extract the principle from this specific command or instance. Um, others would dismiss it or would say, well, if you look a couple verses later, there's, this is, you know, I think two or three verses later, there's a command to put a railing on your roof, right? Because, um, well, if someone falls off, you're liable. You're liable for your, for your brother. And so if it's lumped in with these kind of vague civil commands, what, what does this really mean for us at all? Um, and so many would, would say this doesn't really even apply to uh, what this meant for the Israelites really doesn't even translate at all to the gender dysphoric condition. Um, I, I get that. I, I am personally uneasy picking individual verses out of the Old Testament and saying that's sin. You shouldn't do that um, until we understand what's what's going on here. Um, you may not ag- agree with that, and, and that's okay. Um, you, you would you'd be in good company, I'm sure. Um, I know I know you're in good company because there, there's a lot of Christian ethicists that would see a much closer relationship be- between the commands of the Bible and Christian ethic ethical commands. Um, How many would say that that was uh, Old Testament dogma that no longer relates? Yes, yeah, well, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, that, that p- part of the part of the story is um, well, what Christians will do is they'll make a distinction between civil law and ceremonial law, like sacrificial law, and they'll say, well, those laws 
have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so those just don't apply at all. And the civil laws we can kind of transfer over, but they fall under a bigger heading of like justice and care and concern for your neighbor, uh, etc. Um, and, and others would say um, Jesus fulfilled the law. Um, Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount that he's put an end to the law, therefore none of this applies. So you'll, you'll have a whole spectrum of views. Uh, you'll also have, a, there, there's a, a, a slightly odd combination of, um, there's at least one thinker who says that, we, that none of the Old Testament laws apply unless you see them restated in the New Testament, which uh, is, is, is a bit interesting. Um, and I had an argument with this person about not needing to keep the Sabbath because that is not explicitly stated in the New Testament, which I think that just I think it goes to show um, the whole problem of approaching the Bible as a law book for ethics to begin with. Um, so my my response to this person was, so what did God do on the seventh day? Um, in other words, it's okay for God to rest, but. <laughs> Anyway, that's, it's a deeper theological issue, but um, I, we need to move on. But yes, um, it would be a blast to do a whole lecture on how you use Bible and Christian ethics. I don't know if anybody would come, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, it's, uh, yeah, I find this stuff fascinating. But um, for the sake of time and moving on, um, and, and the, the, the last one, again, is going to be the least palatable. Uh, Yarhouse talks about adopting... Uh, adopting a cross-gender role and identity. And that means everything from role-playing in private to full-on transition surgery. Um, statistics are hardly conclusive. People will fight over whether or not um, suicide is higher with or without the surgery. Um, the statistics are equally depressing on both sides of that debate. Some are happier, others, others profess profound regret. Um, those especially who express the autogynephilic type, that is like the arousal type, are more likely to express regret if they have the surgery. This goes back all the way to two weeks ago and this distinction that uh, Oliver O'Donovan made. I think it's a significant moral distinction between um, the psychological and the social case. Um, he calls the psychological case um, where someone actually views surgery as a resolution of their true gender identity. So in other words, privileging the inner over the outer um, and seeing that as a resolution. Um, I think that's different than the person who says, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm broken in some way and I'm trying to make it through life and I'm adopting this as a framework of pretense. Are either of these um, palatable? Well, it depends on, on who you talk to, but it's... Um, Yarhouse continually defaults to, I want to, as a clinician, always go for the least invasive, least invasive approach. Um, and so he's, he's not willing to be pinned down on that. Uh, and just for what it's worth, I've included a study that he conducted that he's, uh, this is lifted right out of his book. It, it does give us some type of understanding uh, of the progression of how dysphoria may manage itself. It's a little bit frustrating because he's got these numbers, but he never says how many people were in the study. Uh, and I wasn't able to get a copy to actually read the study. But uh, he notes that the average, for adults who are diagnosed, the average age of awareness is six. 
Um, and that by 11, there is, there's internal confusion, whether it's emotional dissonance or gender variant behaviors. By age 18, they're reasoning more about it. Either something is wrong with me, I need to do research, um, I want to be the opposite gender. Um, by age 27, there is a more uh, concerted attempt to address the conflict through counseling, uh, either that or cross-dressing or some type of behavior. Um, I think this is probably the, the profoundest, uh, the, the most sad statistic of all, is that you have, from eight, you have 31 years on average of someone not telling somebody else that they're dealing with this. Um, whether it's a spouse or significant other. And then by age 47, um, we have many report no resolution. Some get assistance from others, others transition, and others just learn to accept that, um, that things are not going to go well for them or that, that this, is, this, this dysphoria is manageable, but I'm not sure. I'm not going to ever do anything radical, but I'm, I'm kind of stuck with it. Um, what about the religious landscape? I lifted this from the, the Pew Research Center. This was conducted in 2015. Where do churches stand on this? Um, uh, these are denominations. So um, I, just for what it's worth, I thought this was uh, briefly worth looking at. If you're in the Episcopal or you're a Reformed uh, Jew uh, or you're the uh, Unitarian Universalist or United UCC, United Church of Christ, there is um, inclusion. And by inclusion, it means not only acceptance in, in the body or membership, but inclusion would, in, uh, would count uh, ordination participation. Um, there are uh, denominations that have no statement, but they're working towards something. The ELCA is working on something. I think it is just a matter of time before they'll be put in the, the left column. PCUSA, United Methodist Church, is still trying to work through some issues. Um, there are some that are mixed or undecided or don't have a position. The, the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Church of God, um, the PCA. Um, the, it's interesting the Roman Catholic Church is put in this, uh, in this uh, group because they, in, in some of the statements I've read, that they, it would it would seem to me that they would be over here. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that. Assemblies of God, the Mormons, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is a more conservative branch of the Lutheran, a, a more conservative synod of the Lutheran Synod, uh, and Southern Baptists have uh, stated barriers to inclusion. In other words, you, you wouldn't be allowed to be a pastor if you were, um, if you were um, gender dysphoric. And that's a bit vague, and I'm, I'm not sure what that means if someone says they're gender dysphoric, because that, that's a label, and I guess the bigger question is how do you interpret that, and how do you respond to it? But uh, for what it's worth, um, this is, this is a, a broad level, high level kind of picture. I have included, I'm not going to read all of it, but uh, just as a sample, I have a statement from the Southern Baptist Convention I mean, they're, they're at least trying to track with cultural issues. They've had a statement out since 2014. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of highlighting the, the, the points that I thought were, you know, I, I guess worth stating. Resolved, we love our transgender neighbors. We seek their good always. We welcome them to our churches. 
as they repent and believe in Christ, um, receive them into the church membership, and uh, be it further resolved, we regard our neighbors, our transgender neighbors, as image bearers of the Almighty, of Almighty God, and therefore condemn acts of abuse or bullying committed against them. Also, be it resolved, we oppose efforts to alter one's bodily identity. Uh, they say, for example, hormone therapy, gender reassignment surgery, to refashion it to conform with one's perceived gender identity. So they're very clear that it's never okay to pursue surgery or hormonal therapy. Uh, not long after that, the Nashville statement came out, um, and it was signed. Uh, it's signed by the likes of you know you may have heard of some of these people: uh, John Piper, James Dobson, J.I. Packer, Wayne Brudem, Rosaria Butterfield. Albert Moeller, Tony Perkins, R.C. Sproul, Nancy DeMoss, Wolgamuth, Francis Chan, Dennis Rainey, Alistair Begg, Randy Alcorn, among others. So there's these you know, big name signature, signatories, signa, signatories. Why can't I say that? Um, and, and you can, you know, if you want to read the whole statement, I've got the websites there for you, but you just as easy as Google and type in the Nashville statement. Oh, I'm sorry, here. Uh, article 10, I just picked two. We affirm it's sinful to approve of homosexual immorality or transgenderism and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. We deny that the approval of homosexual immorality or transgenderism is a matter of moral indifference about which otherwise faithful Christians should you know, agree to disagree. We affirm the grace of God in Christ enables sinners to forsake transgender self-conceptions and by divine forbearance to accept the God-ordained link between one's biological sex and one's self-conception of as male and female. We deny that the grace of God in Christ sanctions self-conceptions that are at odds with God's revealed will. Um, I mean, Article 13, I think, invites more questions and... Uh, about whether certain kinds of therapy are available and whether it is ever acceptable to manage one's condition without sinning, which I, I wasn't exactly clear. Um, look, I have no major issues with these statements other than um, you know, some of the language seems to imply you know, like transgender folks are sinners. I'm like, well, what about the rest of us who aren't? Um, so I... Um, I didn't sign the document, A, because like on the national moral landscape, I'm really, I'm like a nobody, so, and I'm, I'm okay with that, right? Like, who cares? Some seminary professor. And, and um, I don't like being boxed in, so it's not that I'm entirely against what they're saying, but um, if you do sign something like that, you, you are instantly in the culture wars labeled a hater, and you've just kind of written yourself out of a lot of conversations that might otherwise take place. So I, I, I get this, that I get it that, you know, we do need a statement for the church, for those uh, in the chairs or the pews. Like, wh where does the church stand on this? But um, I don't like, I, frankly, I just don't like signatories and big documents that make all of these claims that are, I, I think, generally true, but um, they leave too much undefined. So 
um, th th there you go. Oh, so could you elaborate Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and that, that's what really bugs me about it. it, it, okay, it, it so it's not that it's open-ended, it's that it's too well I think it's, yeah, and I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. And, and again, I, the, the general, like the theological points they're making, I think are, are solid, and I think they're biblical. And I, I want to affirm that, that we should always help individuals come to grips with and affirm their unambiguous biological gender that, you know, God gave them and us. Um, but uh, like these questions about what 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 kind of treatment is are, are left for these individuals? It seems to me that some of these are worded in such a way that well, if you're repenting, you can come here and be with us. Um, well, what if you're wrestling with that? Um, what if you um, what if you are managing it and you're doing everything in your power not to have surgery? Are you are you sinning? Are you are you rebellious? Um, how do we handle those in-betweens? So, again, the major points, um, if you abstract from some of the language, yeah, great, I have no problems with that. But I think someone who is really struggling with this might read some of these and say, well, I can see, yeah, you have the language of love and acceptance and et cetera, but it seems to be on your terms that if I am repenting or doing this, then you can come be with us. What if I'm questioning, struggling, trying to keep my head above water? Is there a place for me at your church? Okay, so, so it's more how it would be applied. I mean, this last yeah. year, right? We deny the grace of God in Christ's sanctions, self conceptions, and right obviously God with your will. Yeah. I mean, it seems like part of what we're discussing right now is that sure. there is a sanctioned self conception from God. Absolutely. Related to Absolutely. material, for yep. your, your bodily experience. Yep. Right? So. If someone is struggling, but they're trying to get to that conception, yep. I mean, they're aligning with the natural statement. Sure, but I suspect that they won't read it that way. But yeah, I that that's that's my point. But yeah, I, I again, I don't take any big issue with what's going on here. Um, but it, here, here's what's happened: it's invited rebuttals, like the Denver statement. Uh, and I've got too many slides. I've got more slides on the Denver statement than the others um, as we work to wrap this up. Um, I'm just I'm going to skip some of their specific language because I just I want to be done and say a couple more things and open this up to questions because um, I think your questions are more important than some of the rest of this. But this is uh, Nadia Boltz Weber has um, issued a rebuttal to the Nashville statement. Uh, Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in an exciting, beautiful, liberating, holy period of historic transition. Western culture has embarked on a massive revision of what it means to be a human being by expanding the limits and definitions, notice the language, previously imposed by fundamentalist Christians. Well, that's, I, I don't think that's, you know, I wouldn't agree with that at all, but right, but this is, um, this is getting more play than the Nashville statements. By and large, the spirit of our age discerns and delights in the beauty of God's design for all human life that is so much richer and more diverse than we have previously understood it to be. So the, the counter-narrative within the broad Christian community is that any perspective that tries to pin us down to male and female is fundamentalist. I mean, it's, it's, it's patently unfair, and it hardly seems like a, a biblical position. But when... You know, it's inevitable that when you release a statement and you put it on the internet, you're going to invite someone to uh, to disagree with you. Um, so we affirm. You know, here's vague allusions to Pauline uh, 
phrases. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We believe in full inclusion of all people in the body of Christ. Uh, we cannot bind the conscience of other Christians. Okay, but you know, can the Spirit do that? Um, we deny it's sinful. Here they come right out. We deny point blank that it is sinful to approve of queer identities and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. Now, that's just a bold assertion with like nothing to back it up, right? I mean, there needs to be... Um, I would like to hear the arguments behind that. So how, how do you connect scripture to this kind of, um, this kind of affirmation? Um, well, I hope to be further along here, but I'm, I'm almost done. Um, there's more. It's in your notes, so I'm skipping that slide. Uh, and I'm going to give you like three, these are three high-level arguments that are put forward by Christians who are transgender, who are insisting or wanting to argue that there's nothing wrong with this and that um, it's okay to be transgendered and to pursue surgery if that's how you need to resolve uh, the condition. This is the final statement uh, from uh, the, the Denver statement. So uh, at least there's a vague, there's a reference here to Genesis, right? We affirm that God created Adam and Eve, the first human being. But notice here, I, I've italicized that, in God's male and female image, which seems to be kind of reading things into the biblical text, and that all human beings share this image of God in common, but express it differently in body and spirit. So we deny that we as human beings can fully conceive of the glory of God's image or rightfully believe our language can define its limits. Therefore, we deny those who do not conform to society's gender norms, notice not biblical gender norms, um, are outside of some kind of divine plan. So here's, here's the, the subtle point they're making. Um, if we're created in God's image and God is both male and female at the same time, then why can't we also be male and female at the same time? This leads to a, an enormously subtle and complicated discussion about how you use language to talk about God. Um, and if you took a theology class, we would spend at least an hour just talking about language and applying it to God. We don't have any time for that, but I am going to... Um, um, yeah, this is. Uh, they'll also appeal to uh, Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes, as a creation myth that speaks of the first humans being created as androgynous, and then God splits them in half to be male or female. The idea is, if this is okay, why why shouldn't um, you know why shouldn't we be allowed to do this? So there's also a final appeal to rabbinical interpretations between Genesis one and Genesis two. And uh, some rabbis have speculated that Adam was androgynous because you have Genesis 2, Eve being taken from the side of Adam. Rib is a poor translation of the Hebrew, but then we have Genesis 1 account, how do you harmonize them? Uh, it, rabbinical interpretations are, frankly, just wild and all over the place, but they're fascinating to read. Um, Here's Brueggemann's response, and I think he's right, and that's why I'm giving you this near the end here. Uh, as a, as a, a kind of rebuttal to what the Denver statement is trying to say, sexual identity is part of creation, but know what he says, it is not part of the creator. And by the way, he is not addressing transgender concerns. He wrote this commentary before, before this has really become, became an issue. 
This text, that is Genesis 1, 26 through 28, provides no warrant for any notion of the masculinity or femininity or androgyny of God. Sexual, sexuality, sexual identity, sexual function belong not to God's person, but to God's will for creation. Sexuality is ordained by God, but it does not characterize God. It belongs to the goodness God intends for creation. Um, and I think I, I, um, I'm going to leave off the stuff on Unix. It's, it's, in, your, it's in your handout. Uh, I have included uh, uh, excerpts from a book called Transforming. It, was, it just came out this year. It is a... Uh, it's written by a Christian, a recent seminary graduate who was in the process of transitioning, and he's trying to make sense of his journey, and he's tying it to scripture, and he's trying to make a biblical case for um, transitioning. And he appeals to eunuchs in a rather creative way, but there's other things going on. Um, I just wanted you to be aware that it's out there. Uh, so I, I lied here. One quick summary. <laughs> when I read that eunuchs would be made joyful in God's house of prayer, I found myself convinced that transgender people are meant not only to survive in Christian community, but to thrive in it. It was Isaiah 56, which speaks of this, let not the eunuch say, I am merely a dry tree, that helped me understand the power of a shared story. Um, these are the, the summaries that um, are high level and in your notes. And in the interest of time, I wanted to leave more time for questions, and I've left less. So my apologies. If you have questions, I will stay as long as um, n necessary. And thank you for your patience in letting me, well, in, in, in drinking from like what feels like a fire hose. So um, thank you. And questions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so the, the, the thorn could be societal opposition. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tantalizingly vague, but yeah, it's, uh, but I suspect it's, you know, Paul, would, for whatever reason, in his, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he, either they knew what he was talking about or he didn't really want to disclose all the details. Question just because yes. I've looked at quite a few, or at least the data from yeah. quite a few studies, and I'm not at all obviously a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. and gender disorders, so I'm assuming that these journals that are being discussed mm -hmm. in various measures are all leading journals in the field. And I'm yes. just wondering if, as you were reviewing um, the data and whatnot, yes. if you came across yeah. any meta analysis or discussions of a publication bias or population selection bias. Because yeah. we do come through, I mean, you yourself mm -hmm. mentioned I wouldn't put it in an email, correct? Yes. And, because, yep. and so when we look at the publication of various, especially when we make a strong claim, like there is no prospective-looking cohort study yes. that examines this, which is kind of your gold standard of a, of a study. You yep. want to look at a population yep. and follow them forward 80 years and yep. examine the outcomes, and then you have a stronger sense mm -hmm. of what causality factors, and you can really account for confounders. 
So if they're looking at, is there a publication bias that we're running against? Because if you were a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. of some repute, and you came forward with a study like this, mm -hmm. as we can see, there would be significant, not even just pushback in getting it published, because you would have to have yes. at least three reviewers who yep. are also prominent in the field, given okay. Yep. And then you're just professional. I mean, when we look at crucifixion mm -hmm. of scientists in general, yep. yeah. what would occur? And my sure. second question is, if part of our challenge with this gender struggle, our mm -hmm. gender dysphoria, our yeah. gender identity, is that in those, and we look and we see, we don't see anyone who's recovered, we don't have people standing up and saying mm -hmm. that part of it may be that inner tension of, if I feel like I've overcome, because many of these populations seem to look at people who say, either I've just kind of flatlined and I'm just, yep. or I'm going to transition or I'm mm -hmm. going to fill in the blank. Are we somehow in our population selection? Because everything appeared to be predominantly retrospective. Mm -hmm. So identify these people who are struggling, we're going to go back yep. and then try to identify things coming forward. Mm -hmm. Are we, in fact, introducing a population bias because we're missing people who aren't going to stand up necessarily and say, yeah, I had this and overcame? Yeah. Or we don't even know how yep. to identify those people to begin with. Like, yep. Do I give a survey to a church of 30,000 yep. members and say, hey, would you be willing to be a part of the study? Have you ever struggled with these things? You know, <laughs> well, a few people no. would say, no oh, way. sure, yeah. please, yep. put me out there to be crucified mm -hmm. on this issue. Yep. No, so I'm just wondering, how do we, like in the literature or among the scientific field, mm -hmm. because we're relying a fair amount on yeah. these studies, deal with these issues of internal bias mm -hmm. and how we obtain the data and then even how the data is... Presented. Distributed or yep. made available. Yeah. Because uh, you, know, you could publish it on, you know, PLOS 1 or right. something like that, and everybody's yep. like, oh, that's great. It's not peer reviewed because study sucks. Yeah. Stinks. No, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's, <laughs> yes. Um, bias in reporting. It, it, it's inevitable that it occurs, w without a doubt. Um, but I, from what I've seen, there, there are voices in, you know, among science who are saying themselves, Slow down, mm -hmm. like this is not like the, these. The, the names are in your uh, in your notes, but the, the two physicians who came out and published the article in the Chicago Tribune, like a, a public response to Obama and a kind of plea to say, we we need to do something. We, we can't. It, it is poor practice to take a seven year old's perspective and just take it at face value, like. In, in what in what sphere of reality does that ever work? Um, and and the, also the 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 article from last week the who, um, what's her name? She published the article on this this observation of this sudden rapid onset dysphoria. She she finds that deeply problematic. There are voices in the field. Of course, there's biases, and the reality is is that we probably won't know more clearly about them, and you know, for another fifty years. Because, like you said, most of the studies are retrospective. People are not always happy to come forward and share. The other reality, too, that we need to face is that people struggling with this are going to gravitate towards communities that accept them for who they are and, and you know, where they are at that moment. And so um, that is the perennial tension for Christians because we want to do that the way Jesus did, but we, we can't stop there and just say, we're going to guide you on your journey to transition. We'd say, well, there may be another way of looking at this. And in fact, I think there's power in still loving and accepting these people while giving the message, we don't agree with a lot of the, 
of, of the data, and we don't agree with uh, psychologists. However, we you know we still love you, and um, we want you know we, we we want to be in some kind of we, we're happy to be a resource or be in relationship with you. And and if you do that, you will always. I think like Jesus, you will always earn the scorn of other Christians who would say, how can you accept that? How can you hang out with those people? Which I kind of consider as a badge of honor, right? I mean, I really do. Um, um, I would rather do that than, you know, publicly release statements and sign them. Again, even though, as I, I know, and it's a sore point with me, so you, you can disagree, but I don't, I just, I, I get it that we need to inform our congregations, but I, I'd rather... I'd rather not have my name on a piece of paper so that I could sit down and chat with somebody and say, you know, there's other, there are other Christian counselors, or I wouldn't even say Christian counselors, there are other counselors who might help you unpack why you're feeling this way. I mean, is it ever wise to just take your feelings at face value and just run with them? I mean, that, that doesn't really work in our world. I mean, it doesn't work very well. I mean, we, we'd all go off the rails pretty quickly. Uh, but th- those are all great questions. They're they're wonderfully scientific questions, and I don't I, I don't have a good answer for you other than of course there's biases, uh, and I wish that more clinicians would come out and say we need to slow down, especially with kids. This is this is um, this is this is crazy, but um, we're we're not seeing that um, enough. But thank you. Those those are all wonderful questions. Anyone else? Yeah. I noticed in California there's a bill that's made from the Senate and discussed in the legislature. Now, that things are absolutely illegal to have conversations. Yes. And then you can't publish it, you can't talk yeah. about it, you can't yeah. rehearse it in any way. So when society gets to yeah. that level, and the group which is the governor, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, again, again, that's utter nonsense, and it, it, uh, you know, I, I would be inclined to write a public letter and connect it to like totalitarian regimes and ask what's happened to free speech. I wouldn't make it about Christianity at all, and you know, off the record, I would just completely ignore anything that ever became law. I, I can't imagine that actually becoming law, to be honest with you. But I know a lot of Christians are worried about that, rightly so. Uh, on another level, I just say, so what? Um, yeah, you write a public letter saying, I thought we were a liberal democracy that privileged free speech. Um, and I think that would still have traction in our world, hopefully. And then, again, privately, uh, it's just nonsense. I would, I would talk to individuals if they had a question, and, I would, if they, and they probably wouldn't ask me because I'm an ethicist, but I would give them a, a Christian perspective. Um, Again, I personally don't think that bill's going to survive, but it's California, so you never know. <laughs> yes, Kay. It sounded like the, the perspective of trying to take a middle road and say, like, yes, we love you, we want to support you, and we don't necessarily agree with you transforming your life in your body mm-hmm. is in the minority. Is that true? And do you see... If it isn't a minority, do you see it expanding at all? Like, do you see more Christians being willing to take that middle road, or is that not happening right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I just don't know, but my suspicions are not optimistic because, it, again, it seems to me that the vast majority of evangelicals are reactionary and combative, and want to, we want to make sure that we've got our beliefs down, 
so that people know where we stand. Um, and it, it, maybe I'm maybe I'm being unfair, <laughs> but you know I I I. I say that as an evangelical, although I, I don't actually use that label publicly anymore because it's saddled with so much baggage of the kind of stuff I just mentioned that I'd just rather be identified as a Christian. Um, I think Yarhaus, some of his writings are, are a step in that direction, but I, I, I do see a, a bigger divide between complete embrace and acceptance and you be you and this is what the Bible says, and I don't see a lot of people in the middle ground. I just, I just don't, and maybe I haven't done enough research. Um, but I would, I would, I would like to see that expand, just so that, um, well, primarily so that people could sit down with one another and like people might actually come to Jesus. I mean, notice not so that their dysphoria necessarily resolves, but first and foremost so that they come to Christ, and and then we'll sort out all that other stuff, and and maybe it never gets sorted out. Yeah, yeah, Leandro. Um, you mentioned that your body should be seen as a gift of God. Mm-hmm. And what is in there about your your personality, your spirit? Is that spontaneously generated apart from God, or is that, is that also a gift from God? And how do you reconcile? Yeah, you know, if they're both yep. gifts from God, why do yep. you have? This? Mm-hmm. You couldn't have asked a more complicated, expansive question if you tried. Um, that's good. Um, here, here's what I'd say minimally. In the Old Testament, like in the ancient Near East context, this whole idea of inner, outer, body, soul was largely foreign to the, the Israelite mindset. I mean, it, we do see images of that later when there's talk about Sheol and what happens when you die. And there's this vague language of your you, you dwell in this nethermost land where you're cut off from God's love and God's people there's you know it's a place of darkness but yet there's some hope for a future resurrection in the old testament we don't even see that until you get to Daniel where you get some prophecy that indicates that you know there will be life after death um, but uh, I don't want to overdo that either but it, in terms of um, in the Hebrew mindset, this, this distinction between inner and outer soul body, yes, we have language, you know, praise the Lord, oh my soul, etc. That, that distinction is not as, it's, it's really not pronounced. I mean, what, what we're talking about is more of a, I don't want to say a modern phenomenon, because it does go back to Greek and Platonic thought, where, um, you know, Plato held that we're really souls, who just happen to inhabit bodies, right? And when we die, it's the soul that's immortal and goes back to heaven. Um, I, again, I don't want to overstate it, but uh, the Hebrew understanding is far more concrete and far more reticent. Um, you'll see this in the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew word, nefesh, which means spirit or breath or life. And sometimes nefesh is spoken of as the entire person. So, um, but... Sin manifests itself in a disordered perspective on our biology. It's not a sin to be biologically male or female. That's, we're created by God that way. It's our attitudes that we have toward our bodies um, that, that go astray. And, and, and gender dysphoria is one of innumerable ways that we, um, that we go astray with perspective to our bodies. 
um, you know, there are other other issues as well. But uh, yeah, that's my best short answer to that. Um, okay, and then Jeremy, sir. Along that line of thinking, though, if you if we would bring that into the context, you could say the same thing. If you could consider the sin on the body to do anything that's harmful to the body, yeah, smoking, drinking yep. excess, yep. drugs, would be the same yep. thing. Yep. Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right, and and that's um, again we, culturally we don't think we don't tend to think that way. We don't. Um, <laughs> That's not a significant. It's, it's part of our identity when we're talking about gender, but it, it doesn't seem to hold a lot of moral force. And so I, I've got a colleague who's working on a book in it just primarily in the discipline of ethics and medicine, and the whole book is going to be about how we've lost the body in medicine, which sounds kind of like an odd thing because medicine is all about healing the body. But he's talking more about. Um, the moral force that having flesh and blood should have are, are, you know, how movements in history and philosophy have worked against us even thinking about the body as uh, really us or uh, as having any kind of normative claim over our desires and uh, who we should think about ourselves and others. But uh, yeah, but yeah it's a, that's a perfectly legitimate point. Um, yeah, what we do with our bodies is no less significant than our thought life. And, and we can't separate them. Okay, yeah. Um, so at some point, uh, you mentioned that there being space in between. On one side, um, uh, people are, do whatever you feel. And on the other side, being, well, this is what the Bible says. Now, in terms of this is what the Bible says, um, other than that verse about cross-dressing, and mm-hmm. probably that verse uh, about um, uh, God created the male and female. Yes. Um, are there other verses people use to kind of hammer this is what the Bible says? Um, yes. Well, there's uh, Gen- uh, Deuteronomy 23.1, which is uh, about, uh, it's about those uh, whose testicles are crushed should not be allowed into the assembly. And it has to do with holiness and purity. So some would say, you know, that's mutilation. Um, etc. But I, I, I just don't think it relates directly to this discussion at all. Uh, the other verses that you'll have are Jesus' reference to eunuchs in the New Testament where he says some were made that way um, by God, some were made by men, and some have made themselves that way. And I, don't, I thought I have the reference to that. Um, uh, that verse will tend to, be, tend to be embraced more by those who want to carve out a space for like a biblically sanctioned transgender life where you're transitioning um, I, it's in the gospel of Matthew and I don't have the exact references but and it's it's only one place and but those words are significant for a lot of people because again here is someone who's had you know part of themselves cut away and Jesus is referring to them as still having well, in Isaiah, uh, God is referring to them as still having a place in the Israelite community. And so that, that's a verse of hope for a lot of transgender Christians who are wanting to transition but also wanting to theologically justify their position. But the reality is, is that you've got to go more with theological claims than anything else because there aren't many, there aren't many verses um, that would... I mean, here's the problem. Um, I don't know, strictly speaking, if there really are any verses that really address this issue at all directly. And so, like, my, my 
my technical response as a Christian ethicist would be something like this. The Bible, I'm going to get in trouble for this, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about transsexuality because the Bible doesn't actually tell us anything. I mean, this is a, we are privileged to get to see a narrative where God spoke through prophets and the nation of Israel and came as Jesus Christ to reveal his will to transform the world and redeem us from sin. That's a narrative. It should inform our lives. But when we go and say the Bible says this and apply it to this position, things get really complicated. And so I push my students, and I say that right away, just to kind of get it out of the way. And after they recover from the shock, say, you know, don't worry. We will. We will make connections here. But I, I think the way to do it is through theological ethics, which says... There are doctrines in Christian theology that are informed by Scripture. How do we think theologically about X, Y, and Z, about transgenderism? So in one sense, like uh, the question about verses is like, well, the answer is none. But, um, but that doesn't stop people on both sides from using verses to, um, I mean, there's this well-worn phrase like clubbing verses or uh, hammer verses, or there's another verb for beating someone over the head, uh, and I can't remember. Thumping, thumping verses. I, I can't remember, but there's like, here are the texts that Christians use to thump people over the head with. But, and that's, um, that's kind of unfortunate. But again, I'm all for reading and studying and meditating on Scripture, so please hear me clearly. Um, it just, when we, when we do ethics, it's not as simple as we would like to think. Sure. Well, so I, I guess um, trying to clarify in my mind what you're saying, it sounds like... Um, the, the, the best arguments uh, that assert the uh, traditional uh, kind of moral view of yes. uh, transgenderism may not specifically, uh, the best arguments may not specifically come from a specific Bible verse, yes. but rather from kind of the tradition of theology that's developed over the years. Yes, that are connected to, like, I, I still think we need to interpret Genesis 1, 26 through 28, right? And so there is, I mean... God created. God created male and female. There doesn't. There's no hint of sexual ambiguity. Um, other, you know, these issues. Um, and so it does come down to. I would like to see it be more about how do we read Genesis one. And it's clear that it, within the Christian community, conceived broadly, there there are radically divergent views about what it means to be created in God's image. And some transgender Christians would. Would, would see being created in God's image as being, you know, well, God is male and female. God is both, uh, or God is androgynous. That's, that's a strong theological claim that needs some backing, right? So that's where I would, I would say, well, let's, I, I, we need to unpack that a little bit because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I see anything in the text that would even remotely hint at that. So, and then th- th- there might be like a deeper discussion. I don't know if I really... I get the feeling I didn't really answer your question, but... Well, I think I, I think what you said was very helpful for me to understand kind of um, how that position tends to be developed. Well, great. Um, thank you. I'll, I'll let... If you need to go, go ahead, and I will... I can stick around um, for a few more minutes. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Yeah. People wanted more of this. Is it going to be covered in the class this fall? Um, what kind of thing? Just a little, just a little. I don't know. I'm always changing uh, things for that. Yes, I could. That's not a bad idea. I will give it consideration. And that's it.
that's, that's not meant to be like a dismissive comment. I mean, I would really, uh, I would think, yeah, I would think about that. But that's a, that's a really good idea. Yes. 